What do you do when you don't know what to do? What do you do when you don't know what to do? Uh, my decision, uh, Sally and I's decision to retire was not a snap decision. It didn't happen in just a few moments. Something we pondered over, prayed over, thought about. But I got the very strong impression from the Holy Spirit that this indeed was the right decision at the right time. But it didn't come like overnight. It came over a period of uh, years and months and days to come to that decision. So what do you do when you don't know what to do? Now, I want to be very careful as to what the exact question is. I'm not saying, what do you do when you don't know what you're doing? <laughs> I, I don't really have an answer for that one. Um, many times I find myself in that position. But what do you do when you don't know what to do? Many times in life and in the Christian life, we are faced with situations. We don't know what to do. Which way should I turn? What choice should I make? Should I keep struggling and trying and striving, or should I wait patiently and silently? What do you do when you don't know what to do? You know, as you study the life of David and you look at the Psalms, he struggled with this many times in his life. And so we see this here in Psalm 13. We're going to look at three Psalms of David in these three Sundays, asking the question, what do you do when you don't know what to do? And we're starting out here with Psalm 13. The entire collection of psalms is entitled Praises in the Hebrew text. Later, the rabbis would often designate them as the book of praises. The noun psalm it comes from a Greek verb that basically means the plucking or the twanging of a string. And we've had some plucking and twanging of strings here this morning as we have worshipped the Lord as they did in the day of David. So this implies an association with music. Some have called the Psalms the hymn book of Israel. Certainly, many of the Psalms were written in order to be sung. Hard for us in English to understand some of those things and how they could be sung, but that is certainly true. The primary purpose of the Psalms is to enable, to encourage us, to instruct us in the proper way to worship God. I've always found it significant that the Psalms are in the middle of the Bible. I'm not necessarily one who... Uh, takes up on you know the order of the books, and I think God providentially oversaw that. I believe in plenary verbal inspiration, word for word. Every word is inspired by Almighty God in the original text. I firmly believe this is the word of God. But I think God providentially arranged it so that the Psalms are basically in the center of the Bible. Particularly in the Old Testament, they sit between the sad history of the kings and the warnings of the prophets. If you're familiar at all with the Psalms, you realize that you open up the book of Psalms and the very first Psalm begins with these words, blessed is the man. And so these are books right in the middle of the Bible, 150 Psalms about what you might call experiential religion, using religion in a general term. Um, basically, for those of us in the New Testament, it means living a real Christian life in a real sinful world. And the Psalms can be a great help to us. Not all the Psalms were written by David, but the Psalms I'm picking out here were written by David. And this Psalm here is a Psalm of David. David, one of the most significant persons in the Bible. His name appears over a thousand times. More is written about David than any other biblical character, with the exception, of course, of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
His name in the Hebrew means beloved. I wonder if that's what my name means. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. He's mentioned in the New Testament more than any other Old Testament person. He's mentioned 59 times. 12 times Jesus is called the son of David. So David is a very important person in the word of God. And the life of David, when you study his life in, in, in Samuel and in 2 Samuel, and then you, you look at the Psalms, his life has tremendous application for our lives today. Now, we don't know what particular situation was behind Psalm 13. Some of the th- Psalms in the title will tell us this is when David did this, when he did that. Many Bible teachers believe this psalm is probably associated with David when he was running from Saul. Could have been when Absalom rebelled, but it just seems to fit more perfectly with David running from Saul. And in verse 4, he refers to my enemy, a singular. You know, why doesn't God tell us? Well, why didn't God tell us what thorn in the flesh Paul had? I think maybe, and I I don't know for sure, but I suspect God does this so that we won't just take a passage of Scripture and think it only applies in that situation so we can apply the principles more generally to our situation. If this is, and I suspect it is, a psalm written by David when he's running from Saul, David is the anointed king of Israel, but he's living like a criminal. And Saul is seated on the throne of Israel. But when you study the life of Saul and the life of David, and as they intersect in Scripture, it becomes very evident that Saul was God's tool to shape David into the man that he wanted David to be, even though Saul was responsible for his own actions. Now, this psalm, if you have a New American Standard or New King James, ESV, or some of the the newer versions... Uh, you will see that this psalm is divided into what you might call three stanzas. You've got verse 1 and 2, then you have a break, verses 3 and 4, and then you have verses 5 and 6. It's a psalm that's arranged very beautifully, and it's a psalm that you might say starts in the basement and ends in the balcony. It's a psalm where, where David begins in anxiety and he ends in rejoicing. And it's a beautiful progression as you walk through this psalm. The psalm reveals why David is called a man after God's own heart because David had a very personal relationship with God and you certainly see that here in Psalm 13. Now, if we take the two-verse stanza that I talked about, verses 1 and 2, 3 and 4, 5 and 6, you find the, the name of God, Lord, one time in each of those stanzas. That's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Whenever you see that in the Old Testament, that's Yahweh. That's Jehovah. That's I am that I am. That's the name that Jesus clearly identified himself with in John chapter 8. Before Abraham was, I am, and the Jews were going to stone him, they knew exactly what David was, or what Jesus was claiming. He was claiming to be identified with the Yahweh, the Jehovah of the Old Testament. So it's not a stretch to say that when David doesn't certainly understand, he's not heard yet of Jesus of Nazareth, that comes later in the unfolding of redemptive history, but this is Jesus David is communing with, his Lord and his Savior. Now, first of all, this begins with David's questions in verses 1 through 2. 
Four times, David asked the same question, how long? Now, you'll find this question scattered throughout the Psalms. This is a question that Job repeated. This is a question that the prophet Habakkuk said in Habakkuk 1-2, O oh Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear me? So what this tells us is David is not only concerned about the particular trial that he's going through, he is concerned about the length of the trial he's experiencing. Why does this trial keep going on? And for some of you in here, you're in the midst of an extended trial. Some of us have gone through extended periods of trials. And you know the old adage, you've heard me say it again, and other preachers say it before, you're either coming out of a trial, you're in a trial, or you're going into a trial. It's just the nature of living in a fallen world. So David is struggling with the length of the trial. Do you know the hardest part about waiting is waiting? <laughs> that's profound, but that's true. Um, I think I'm more patient and I think I'm better at waiting than I used to be. Well, you could have to check with my wife to find out if that's true. But don't ask her right now. I, I think I am, but I still don't like to wait. I don't like waiting. And I particularly don't like waiting when I'm asking God for an answer or when I'm going through a trial and God just doesn't seem to be answering. But we're going to learn from David as you walk through this psalm what many of us have learned but continually need to relearn that God designs both the depth and the duration of our trials. He designs in his sovereignty and his providence how deep the trial is and how long the trial goes. And one of these days, we're going to have a trial that's going to take us right to glory. And so let's look at David as he expresses his emotions here. That's the great thing about the Psalms. You get to see behind David's actions that you see in the historical books, and you get to see how David feels. And this is very helpful to us because we are people who have been given by God both will and both emotion. First of all, David feels forsaken. He feels forsaken. Verse 1, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Have you ever felt that way? You ever felt like God's just too busy with everybody else and you pray and like the psalmist says it's like the heavens are brass it's like they bounce right back down like why doesn't God intervene why doesn't God answer now does David know intellectually that God doesn't forget sure he does I know that if you know the Bible at all you know that an omniscient God cannot forget. When the Bible talks about God forgetting our sins, it means he chooses not to hold them against us. God knows everything all the time. But this is David's emotions here. He's struggling with them. He can't understand why the Lord lets this situation go on. If it is the situation with Saul, you know, that went on for years. And we don't know when exactly David penned this psalm. But he's really struggling with his emotions here. In Job 23, verse 10, Job went through a difficult period in his life. But Job said, but he knows the way I take. When he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. He knows the way I take. And God knows 
what I'm going through, God knows what you're going through if you are one of his children. If you're not, he does know what you're going through and maybe he's allowing it to draw you to himself. David could not see it at the time, but God was preparing him to become the king of Israel. Saul was God's tool to shape David. Every trial I've been through, every trial you're going through as a believer is a tool of God to shape you, to shape me into the image of Christ. I don't like that. It hurts. But that's the way God works. I love Chuck Swindoll. He's such a great Bible teacher, and he makes things so understandable and so practical. Here's a quote by Chuck Swindoll. What wonderful lessons God wishes to teach us if our proud hearts would only be willing to melt in the furnace of affliction. And I know in my life, that's what God does. He, he works on my pride, and, and if I would be willing to let my pride melt in the furnace of affliction, how much more work could God do in me? Do I know that God never forsakes his children? And David knew that, but he didn't feel that. A promise from the Old Testament requoted in the New Testament, Hebrews 13, 5, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Do you understand that's made by the God of the universe? I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. But sometimes we can feel forsaken. And then David feels isolated. Look at verse 1. How long will you hide your face from me? Now, he's talking in a spiritual sense, figurative sense, not in a literal sense. He feels the Lord is distant. Now, as a believer, I know I have the Holy Spirit, and I know God is present with me all the time. And then Jesus says, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. I know God's presence is continual, but I think there's something else that we understand is the sense of God's presence. Sometimes I don't sense God's presence. And I know God never moves. <laughs> so the problem has to be on my end. So David isn't just sensing God's presence. You know, sometimes I often use the illustration when I was in college and Sally was here. I longed to see her face, meaning I longed to be with her. Sometimes you're apart from a loved one and you say, boy, I just longed if I could just see your face. Now, we can't see God's face literally, but we can behold him in the word of God. And so David has the sense that he's on his own. He is not at that time sensing the presence of the Lord. Because remember, David is a man after God's own heart. David, if you read the Psalms, you have to see that David had a very close personal relationship with God. And how much more that we have the inward dwelling of the Holy Spirit, that we can have that sense of his presence and have that constant dwelling with him. Well, then David not only feels forsaken and isolated, David feels confused. Confused. Look at verse 2. Very important verse. How long shall I take counsel, here's the key, in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long shall I take counsel, God, in my soul? Since you're seem, you seem distant and you don't seem like you care and you don't seem to be answering my prayer, i got to figure this out on my own. So David now turns inward upon himself. And that's always unhelpful. When I turn inward upon myself going through a trial, that is really unhelpful. But we're human and we tend to do that. He's perplexed. He feels helpless. 
know, I've learned as I've gotten older that emotional pain is real pain. Now, as a kid, when I was younger, I just thought pain's pain. But when you get older, you recognize that sometimes emotional pain is harder than and more hurtful than physical pain. I know when I was growing up, I wish my dad would give me a spanking instead of a lecture. I would have preferred the physical pain to the emotional pain. And he'd always use that line, you have really disappointed your mother. That was unfair, you know, really. It's like, why don't you spank me and get it over with and I can go out and play. But, uh, but seriously, emotional pain is real pain. And David, in the Hebrew, it's sort of like one thing upon another. David plans something and he comes up with a plan. Doesn't work, comes up with another, doesn't work, comes up with another, it doesn't work. He's taking counsel of his own soul. And since God isn't going to intervene here, I will just try to solve the problem. And if you study David's life, you find out he made some really stupid decisions, like when he goes down to the Philistines and he goes to the enemy and, and God basically bailed him out in spite of himself. Warren Wiersbe has a great quote, faith is living without scheming. That's a great quote. Faith is living without scheming. It's hard for me, and I suspect for some of you, it's hard for me to take my hands off the wheel and let God take over. I feel like he needs my help. <laughs> Did you ever give God counsel? <laughs> don't look at me like that. I know you have. You know, God, why don't you? God, here's what you should do. Now, it's one thing to pray and ask for God, but I always pray according to his will. But sometimes we get so frustrated, we want to counsel the Lord. And in Mark chapter 6, the disciples are in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is up on the hill praying, and a great storm comes up. They think they're going to drown. That's the passage when Jesus comes walking on the water and, you know, enters the boat and calms the sea. But if you read that passage in Mark chapter 6, you'll find out it wasn't until verse 48, the fourth watch of the night... He came to them walking on the sea. That's just before dawn. So he let them out there struggle all night, but he had his eye on them, and he waited until right before dawn to bail them out. Did you ever notice God's timetable is not your timetable? You ever come across that? My timetable and God's timetable never seem to perfectly align, you know. But God has a purpose. He works on his own time frame. The great preacher Philip Brooks says, the trouble is I'm in a hurry and God isn't. That's a great statement. David wants his suffering to end. Who doesn't? Some of you are going through some relational issues or physical issues or different issues I don't understand or don't know about, financial issues, and you want the pain to end. That's human. But, you know, sometimes God will let the storm rage on to teach us some lessons. And then David feels vulnerable, verse 2. How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Don't you know that I'm the anointed king of Israel, God? Don't you know that I'm out here living in caves and Saul's back in the palace? Don't you know that he's about to, he wants to kill me? And he's gotten close a few times. And so David is struggling and he's struggling with the inequities of life. Um, one of the great things we can teach our kids at a young age is life isn't fair. Get over it. Get used to it. Life isn't fair. 
I had Bob read that Psalm 73, the Psalm of Asaph. And what Asaph struggled with was, I, I beheld the prosperity of the wicked, and man, their lives seemed to be going great. And here I am trying to wash my hands in innocence, and I'm trying to serve God, and, and what's, it, what's it getting me? It's like God's forgotten me. I had Bob stop that, that passage where he did, because later on, Asaph says, until I went into the sanctuary of the Lord, then I understood their end. Until I communed with God, until I got my head right, until I got my thoughts right, until I consulted God, then I realized the only heaven those people will ever know is right now, and the only hell I'll ever know is right now. And I got a biblical perspective on the inequities of life. Do you know what? Sometimes God seems to forget his choicest servants in the Bible. You know, Moses gets stuck in the backside of the desert for 40 years. I mean, think of Joseph. What a classic example. He gets up, he gets knocked down. He gets up, he gets knocked down. But God was preparing him to to save many people. And so God does that sometimes. Think of Paul who suffered a thorn in the flesh. And he sought three times for God to take it away. And God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. And Paul said, you know, I'd rather have this thorn and have spiritual strength than to live without it. God is building spiritual maturity in each and every one of us. The classic verse from Isaiah 40, verse 31, those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Waiting times are testing times. Waiting times are growing times. When we are in a situation and we are struggling and we feel like God is apparently disinterested, he is not. He's on his time schedule, not on ours. So now as we move through the psalm, it begins to take a turn. Verses 1 and 2, David is pretty despondent. He's really struggling with his emotions. He's turned inward upon himself. Something's going to happen in the psalm. It will happen in our lives from time to time. David now, notice his petitions. He now quits focusing on himself and he starts to focus on the Lord. First of all, he expresses his faith, verse 3. Consider and hear me, O Lord, my God. My God. David had a personal relationship with God. Instead of complaining about God's apparent inattentiveness... He now calls out to God. Now, this is revealing David's faith. Yeah, David shares his emotions with us, and I'm very thankful for the Psalms, and I'm very thankful that David does that because here's a man after God's own heart. Here's one of God's most choicest servants, and yet he struggled with the same emotions that I do. And I find that extremely encouraging to know how God dealt with David and how he deals with me. The real test of our faith is when God seems distant. In another psalm, Psalm 39, 12, Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. The preacher Sinclair Ferguson says, At the end of the day, we need to know he knows. At the end of the day, we need to know he knows. Now, we know he knows, but we need to sense that. And so we need to take it to the Lord and not like he needs reminding. When we pray, it's because it's we need reminding. But God knows what we're going through. So David first expresses his faith, 
But David is human, so now he expresses his fear. Verse 3, enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. We know for the believer, both Old and New Testament, sleep is a euphemism for the death of a Christian. The body sleeps, but the spirit goes to be with God. David here is, is fearing for his life. You know, if you read the history, there's a few occasions where Saul almost caught up with David and, and could have killed David. And God, you know, an enemy's coming, Saul has to leave off the pursuit, or things happen that God intervenes. I think David's praying for two things here. I think, first of all, he's praying for physical strengthening. You know, when you go through a trial, it may not even be a physical trial. It might be another kind of trial. It, it saps your strength. It, it saps your vitality. And David here, I think, is praying for God to brighten him up in a sense. Do you remember when Saul and Jonathan were doing battle with the Philistines and Saul had made this stupid decree that nobody was supposed to eat anything till the battle was over and Jonathan was somewhere else fighting and he didn't know that and he sees he's, he's chasing the Philistines and he's getting weary and he sees some honey and he dips his rod and he takes some honey and he eats it and, and, and the Bible says his countenance brightened, 1 Samuel 14, 27. It means he was strengthened. I think also David is praying for spiritual insight. Psalm 19:8, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. You know, we often say the eyes are the windows to the soul. You know, often you can tell when somebody's going through a trial because you can just look at them. And it's particularly an extended trial really shows up in our countenance. Certainly a physical trial sometimes, physically our strength is zapped and we can see it in our faces, but... Sometimes it's an emotional trial or a relational trial. And I think David is praying for spiritual insight. He's praying for spiritual strength. The word enlightened means literally to shine, to shine. I think of the benediction that Moses gave in Numbers chapter 6. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up your countenance upon you, lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. We're not talking about having some kind of vision and beholding the face of God, but you behold the face of the Lord through the word of God. As you meditate on scripture and as you pray, we can behold the Lord's face in a sense, and he lifts up our countenance when we are downtrodden. David now expresses his concern, his concern. Verse 4, Lest my enemy say I prevailed against him, lest those who trouble me rejoice when I am moved. Now, is David concerned for himself? Obviously, he is. But David is also concerned for God's glory, for God's glory. Remember, he's the anointed king of Israel. And and, and if if God allows him to be killed, it could say that God was not able to protect his king. And so David is concerned for God's glory. I think, in effect, as you look at this whole psalm and David's situation, I think David came to a point in his life where he basically released his enemy to the Lord. He released them to the Lord. If you're going through a relational issue or a marital issue or or something when, you know, someone else can't, you know, you can't seem to resolve, I think at some point we just have to release them to the Lord and or release a situation to the Lord. Say, God, I can't handle this. I don't have any answers. I've tried like David, and I've tried this, and I've tried that. And so, Lord, I'm just going to turn this over to your sovereign care. 
David's going to focus on his relationship with God. Yeah, he's still got to deal with Saul if this is the case here, or whatever it is, his enemy, whoever it is, that's troubling him. But you know, David's real enemy is the same enemy we have. Um, Pastor Brian mentioned that in the communion. It's the devil. It's Satan. Derek Kidner says, Awareness of God and the enemy is virtually the hallmark of every psalm of David, the positive and negative charge which produced the driving force of his best years. In the New Testament, Peter tells us to be sober, to be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about seeking whom he may devour. Well, we start in verses 1 and 2. David is expressing his emotions. God, have you forgotten me? Are you hiding your face from me? I've got this sorrow in my heart. How long is the enemy going to be over me? And then the psalm begins to take a turn in verses 3 and 4, where David now starts to get his focus off himself, and he starts to focus on the Lord and pray to the Lord. And now, when you get down to verses 5 and 6, the psalm has this wonderful crescendo of praise where David now makes this confession. And he moves from the depths of despair to the heights of his faith. David praises God for his mercy, for his mercy. Look at verse 5. But I have trusted in your mercy. Now, if you've been around grace much at all, you've probably heard me talk about this word mercy in the Old Testament. It's the word hesed. It's just a wonderful word, 240 times in the Old Testament. It's a word that can't be translated by one English word. So it means unfailing love, loyal love, covenant faithfulness, mercy, grace. God said of David, but my mercy, my hesed mercy, shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. 2 Samuel 7.15. The Vines Expository Dictionary says, hesed implies personal involvement and commitment in relationship beyond the rule of law. So I don't quite understand that. Well, the best illustration I can think of is marriage. Marriage. Every morning when I get up, I kiss Sally, and I tell her I love her because I am contractually, um, you know, obligated to fulfill that responsibility. That makes her feel so good when I tell her that, you know. I fulfilled my contractual obligation to you this morning. You say, well, that would be stupid, you know. No, I kiss her and tell her I love her because I love her. But... You have a legal element, but it transcends the legalities, which, by the way, young people, this is why you don't just live together. This is why you get married in a covenant of marriage between you and your spouse and God. It's not all right just to live together and say, well, we love each other. That's, don't need no paper from the courthouse. No, no, you need to be legally married. It's a covenant. It's a covenant before God. And God has covenanted to be in relationship with those who trust his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he has made all kinds of wonderful promises to us. So David praises God for his mercy. The crescendo continues. David praises God for his salvation, his, capital H, salvation. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation, not our salvation. Yes, ours as we personally 
come to know God as our Savior through Jesus Christ and his sacrifice and death, burial, resurrection from the cross. But God is the author of salvation. Salvation is of the Lord, the Bible says. You don't just figure out your own salvation, as many churches are teaching you. Be a good person, you know, take communion, get baptized or confirmed, or whatever that particular church does, jump through these religious hoops. You're not going to be saved because some religious professional did something to you or told you something. Salvation is of the Lord. God is the one who saves us through Christ. For by grace are you saved through faith. If that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. If you're here today and you've never trusted Christ, God offers you this salvation. He wants the covenant with you. It's an eternal covenant of salvation. Now, have David's circumstances changed at this point? No, they have not. His circumstances are the same as back in verses 1 and 2. But because in verses 3 and 4, he starts to get his, his eyes off himself and, and quit trying to take charge of things. And so he f- begins to focus on God. And so now that focus is, is really complete as he considers his Savior. So what has changed? David has changed. He's lifted up his eyes to contemplate the Lord. And notice how his despair is now turning to praise He confesses that the one who saved his soul is surely able to save his life. David is turning his life over to the sovereignty and the providence of God. And that's part of the issue, isn't it? In our human pride, I know I've been there. I don't want to turn things over to God. Okay, God, you kind of help me deal with this. No, it doesn't work that way. And so God brings these trials in my life to humble me so that I get to the point where it's like, okay, God, I quit. I quit battling. I give up. I surrender. If this is what you want me to do and I don't really quite understand it, I'm going to step out by faith and I'm going to do what you want me to do. And then David praises God for his blessings. Verse 6 is quite amazing. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. If you study David at all, you know David loved music. He loved music. And he loved all kinds of music. He loved all different instruments of music that he brought into the temple worship when he's finally made king in, in Jerusalem. And so this thing starts in despair and it ends with David singing and he's praising God for his bountiful blessings. What are you talking about? Well, here's an example from missionary history. Back in 1851, there was a missionary, Alan Gardiner. He had a passion for the people of the Picton Island at the southern tip of South America. And he went through all kinds of struggles and things to try to, and he had a partner and his partner left him and and, and he was expecting a, a boat to bring more provisions, and, and, it, and it never came. It came too late. And basically, at the age of 57, he died of d- disease and starvation. When they found his body under, a, under a, a boat on the beach, his diary was laying nearby. It had a record of hunger, thirst, wounds, loneliness, sickness, 
The last entry in his little book showed the struggle of his shaking hand as he tried to write legibly. And this is what he wrote. I am overwhelmed with a sense of the goodness of God. <laughs> Can you imagine? I am overwhelmed with the sense of the goodness of God. And he's dying alone at 57 years of age on an island because he went there to take people the gospel who had never heard. So David now, his circumstances haven't changed. He's now praising God because his faith now is accepting the situation and he's trusting God and he's turning the situation over to the Lord. And now this brings a sense of peace and joy into his heart. And many of you have experienced that. I've heard your testimony. You know, the trowel isn't lifted. The struggle's still there. But you got to the point where you've turned it over to God and God fills your soul with peace and with joy. And you say, however, Lord, be done to me your servant. I'm trusting you. Another great quote from Swindoll. Although it sounds like a cliche, our fervent petition is still the most effective oil to reduce the friction from the daily grind of despondency. David made a conscious choice. I'm going to thank God. I, I'm going to trust God for his blessings instead of questioning God in his trial. So David's confidence returns. His song is renewed. But his circumstances haven't changed. So what do you do when you don't know what to do? You've heard this before, I'm sure. You do what you know to do. What do you do when you don't know what to do? You do what you know to do. You continue to be in God's word. You continue to pray. We continue to trust God. We continue to express faith in the Lord. We continue to turn ourselves over to God's loving care and his loving providence, knowing he knows best. Trusting as Job said, you know, when I go through this trial, I'll come forth as gold. And maybe that trial is going to end in heaven. Maybe that healing is going to end and it's going to come in heaven. Or maybe God's going to take care of that in this life. If you walk with the Lord many years as I have, you've experienced this process of Psalm 13. And if you're a new Christian, you'll go through it. There'll be times you feel like God is distant. And then you begin to turn to the Lord and God begins, begins to give you a renewed sense of his peace and of his joy. Because we're just frail people. He knows our frame. We are but dust. But then we can go from being despondent and our song will return because that's the great God and Savior we have. But if you don't know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, brother, sister, young person, you are on your own. And I would fear to be on my own in this wicked, godless culture that we live in. You've never turned to Christ. I plead with you today to confess your sin, call out to God to save you because of what Jesus Christ has done for you and receive that wonderful gift of eternal life.